If you're visiting with us this morning, we are continuing a study in the Gospel of Mark, and we will be um, at the latter part of the 15th verse and uh, through until uh, the 8th verse of chapter 16 uh, this morning. There is a, a literary genre called unauthorized biographies. And these are when somebody writes about someone's life story and discloses things about their life that the individual, the famous person, will often deny that those things actually happened and took place because the one who writes the unauthorized bibliography, not bibliography, biography, often does so from a standpoint that is very disparaging. Now, a few things you can expect to happen when one of these are published, and that is that a lot of cease and desist letters will be exchanged, and if nothing else, the lawyers will make an awful lot of money if no one else does. My question this morning, thinking about these unauthorized biographies, is would you let Mark, knowing what you know of how he characterized the disciples, would you let him write your biography? Mark, when he finds dirty laundry, has no issues with airing it for everyone to see. All throughout the Gospels, Mark's characterization of the disciples has been awfully negative. They are characterized as ones who lack understanding, they're full of fear, and they lack faith. Now, clearly Mark does show us amazing examples of people who are faithful. Snapshots of these individuals who come into the gospel who are faithful but then who quickly leave. It's as if Mark will show us what faithfulness looks like and then show us the disciples not living up to that standard of faithfulness and then showing us Jesus fulfilling or exceeding in that standard of faithfulness. And so as we look at our text this morning, we will follow Mark as he points out an example of great faith and then as he displays how the disciples lack the very faith that he calls for. But I have to make two, I guess, unrelated introductory comments. The first is, as Mark talks about the resurrection, he talks about it so mundanely for how most of us would talk about it. He simply assumes the reality of the resurrection. And in fact, I liken Mark's story to the resurrection, to Jesus' story when he is in the temple teaching and he's been lost for three days and the parents come and find him. And Jesus says to the parents, basically, what did you expect? This is where you should have known that I would be. And the same is very true of how Mark tells the resurrection story. It's almost as if we get there and Mark's saying, what did you expect? He's not here. Mark makes no effort to give proofs of the resurrection, to talk about the significance of the resurrection. He just simply says, he's not here any longer. He has indeed been risen. The second thing, if you look closely at your Bibles, you'll notice after the 8th verse of chapter 16 that you likely have some sort of notation with a shorter ending or a longer ending notation there. There seems to be almost unilateral consensus among scholars that what appears after Mark chapter 16, verse 8, was not penned by Mark. In the earliest and most reliable manuscripts, we don't have anything beyond that 8th verse. Now there's a lot of different ideas in terms of why that might be, and we may explain some of that next week. But for this week, I simply wanted to acknowledge that I notice your Bible says something interesting after the 8th verse of Mark chapter 16. 
See, over the last several chapters, the disciples' actions have been a series of disappointing failures. We are identified by Judas's betrayal. You have then all of the disciples deserting him and fleeting in Mark 14.50. You have the denials of Peter. And then you have, as Mark paints the picture, Jesus dying alone on the cross. But in chapter 15 and verse 40, Mark pulls us back into this hope-filled posture that maybe something good will come of the disciples. In Mark chapter 15, verse 40, Mark says, There were women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Yosis and Salome. They used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. We've been reading Mark's gospel, and all of a sudden we're thinking, Whoa! Wait, you're saying from the very beginning, there's been this group of women disciples and we have not even been introduced to them until this very point. And the question we want to ask is, why would Mark hold off introducing us to this group of women until now? And I think as we go through our text this morning, it will become clear that one of the things Mark is doing initially is trying to say, there is hope for disciples and then... Mark may do something less than kind with that hope that he generates within us. So here are some things we need to recognize about these disciples. We do recognize their geographic references, the same that was last mentioned of Peter before the denial. Peter, of course, followed at a distance, and we find these women, again, they themselves now watch or look on from a distance. But at this point where there has been full abandonment, where it seems like you could scan for miles around Mark's gospel and not find a disciple nearby, even having somebody who's standing at a distance creates hope and optimism for us. They're characterized by those who used to follow him. The phrase, of course, is in the past tense, but is imperfect, meaning it's an ongoing thing that they made a habit of being followers of Jesus. The word used for followers is Mark's favorite word for disciples. So they're categorized as these who are disciples and followers of Jesus. And what they did was that they used to provide for him. You've probably recognized the Greek word diakonos, where we get the word deacon from. And, in fact, the concept of serving or of being a deacon, a servant, is very uh, talked about very highly in the gospel. Jesus told us in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? But to diakonos. And so what the very purpose that the Son of Man comes for is exemplified by these women as they are servants or providers for him. And we also know that they've been following ever since he was in Galilee. Likely as you have Jesus entering in the triumphant entry in Jerusalem, that these women were a part of that processional who come in to Jerusalem with Jesus. But we do notice here that there is one of these old-fashioned Mark sandwiches we've talked an awful lot about throughout the gospel, where we're introduced to one group of characters, we're told another thing, and then we come back to the first narrative that we were introduced to. So we're introduced to women, disciples. Then Mark tells us about a man named Joseph of Arimathea, and then he will get back once again to these women, disciples. Mark has been teaching us about discipleship all along. And so let's see what he says of this disciple named Joseph of Arimathea. 
He begins by telling us that Joseph was a respected member of the council. And if you've been reading Mark very closely, is when you find out somebody is a member of the Jewish leadership, and specifically a member of the Sanhedrin council, you're guessing his actions are going to be negative, aren't you? Because there has not been an awful lot of love and care and affection that has come from this group of people. We recognize how easily we judge a book by its cover. How we look at people's situations and circumstances, who they're identified with, and we make assumptions about how they will act or behave. See, Mark, as he's been telling us about discipleship, he's been saying that sometimes people are not identified with the group that they're a part of. We found this out in Mark chapter 3 when we have Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters coming, and we expect that's going to be a great exchange And instead, Jesus says, my mother and brothers and sisters are those who do the will of God. We found Jesus in the midst of several arguments in the the 12th chapter. And then along comes a scribe. And when we meet the scribe, we expect that Jesus is going to chop him down like he does everyone else. And yet, in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, to the scribe, Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom stands open for all people regardless of group affiliation, membership, The question ultimately is, are you as an individual willing to follow? And so we find here a respected member of the council, and what does he do? He also was expectantly waiting for the kingdom of God, and he went boldly to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And here's something that it's been a long time since we've seen this from anyone, boldness, courage. See, there is a risk in going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus. Most commonly, if the body were given over to someone and not thrown in a mass grave, it would have been family members. And the Romans didn't think too highly of this person who they've gone through this whole crucifixion ordeal to shame them, to then give that person an honorable burial. And so it clearly is a risk for Joseph to go and then to request the body of Jesus. And yet he acts with boldness. And faith in Mark has often been defined by those who are willing to take risks in response to Jesus. And so Josephus, Joseph, he, he falls in line with this long list of people who enter into the story of Jesus, who do something based on courage and boldness, and they are recognized as people who are faithful to him. And so in the middle of this sandwich, we find this is what a faithful response looks like, acting with boldness in response to Jesus. And so he goes and then he takes the body of Jesus. Ironically, perhaps not too significantly, perhaps very significantly, Jesus had said at the, at the Last Supper, he said that whoever takes my body, and here we have the first person who takes, same word, the body of Jesus from the cross. He places his, him in the tomb and he rolls a stone against the door. Then we have Mark's transitional verse in verse 47, where Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of, uh, boy, I've struggled with this one, Yosef saw where the body was laid. And so what we find here is that Sabbath has ended probably around 6 p.m., and these women have gone out and have bought the supplies needed to anoint Jesus. They wait until the next morning, Mark tells us, after the light comes up, so there is light present there, and they make their journey over towards the tomb. And this is what they encounter when they arrive, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 16. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. 
But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, here is the place they laid him. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going on ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You can probably get a good sense of why people didn't want Mark's gospel to end in that way. Why these other endings have developed. But remember, when Mark introduced these women disciples, he did so giving us a sense of optimism and hope. There were other disciples out there beyond those that had abandoned him. But now these women disciples are just as unfaithful and painted in just as negative a light. Mark is not sexist. Whether you're male or female disciples, he will paint you in an equally negative light. So what of these women? Why this negative picture? There is in Jesus's, the angel's statement of Jesus, a subtle rebuke. He says, you are looking, the word there in Greek is zateo, for Jesus of Nazareth. It's used ten times in Mark. Most often, in fact, with one possible exception, it is always used in a negative connotation. For example, Mark chapter 3, verse 32. Your mothers and brothers and sisters are outside. They are asking zateo for you. And when they're looking for him, it's because they want to rebuke him and take him back because he's embarrassing the family. Mark 11, verse 18, um, that the leaders were kept looking for Zeteo, a way to kill him. Mark 14, 11, Judas began to look, Zeteo, for an opportunity to kill him. Perhaps the only neutral use is in 137, when the disciples said, everyone is Zeteo, they are searching for you. But even in that case, it wasn't for Christ's own sake, it was to receive something for him. So why would there be a rebuke in the fact that they were trying to do an act of kindness to Jesus by seeking him in the tomb? Two things I think that are at play for what Mark is doing here. The first is Jesus has already been anointed. Remember back in chapter 14, Jesus said in verse 8, of the woman who came, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Jesus' body, they should recognize, does not need to be anointed because it has already been anointed, even prior to his death. But the second and perhaps more significant thing, if these are followers who have been with him ever since Galilee, they would have heard multiple times him saying, I will be raised, and this is what's going to happen. So in Mark chapter 9, verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead could mean. Chapter 9, verse 30, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. Chapter 10, verse 34, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise again. See, the subtle rebuke is this recognition that the disciples who have been with him are expecting to find him in the tomb. They've made these preparations a day in advance that they might go and anoint the body, that the angel is essentially saying, you should have known when you got here, the body wouldn't be here. Because why? Because he already told you he would be raised and you would not find him here. See, they buy into the lie that death is the end and that they believe that the best way that they can honor and care for Jesus is to honor and care for his body but the angel says look 
it simply is no longer here. Why are you seeking where you would not expect to find this Messiah? And so the instruction comes in verse 7, but go tell his disciples that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Again, none of these things should be surprising or should be shocking because Jesus already told them. Back in Mark chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And it's almost as if all these things that Jesus has said, they dismissed. Well, surely he's not going to be raised. Surely he's not going to be in Galilee. And so when they go to the tomb, it should not be surprising. In fact, he has been raised, nor should it be necessary to tell them where he's going to Galilee because he has already told them. And yet they struggle to believe. And so we find of this group of people who the last thing we heard of this group of disciples in 1450, that they all deserted him and fled Jesus is telling the women to go and to get this group to reunite. I think we are to understand that God's view of human failure is that humans are not disqualified by their behavior. Notice how Peter is specifically mentioned, and Peter, because perhaps Peter, more than anyone else know, needs to know, he is still invited to be a part of this community of disciples. That his misbehavior does not exempt him from what God is doing. Though they failed him, Jesus wants to gather them back together again. And then in verse 8, So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And again, we have Mark's irony at work here. There was a healing very early in the gospel of a leper. And of that leper in Mark chapter 1, verse 44, Jesus said, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. So it's say nothing and go. Here they're told to go and tell everyone, but they did the opposite. The leper, even though instructed not to tell anyone, he went and told people. Now the women are instructed to go and tell people. And guess what they do? They don't tell anyone anything. Why? Because they were afraid. As we've been reading Mark's gospel, we've realized fear has played a significant role in hindering disciples from doing what God wishes them to do. When Jesus calmed the storm, says the disciples were afraid. And what did Jesus do? He rebuked them for their lack of faith. In Mark 5, after the healing of the Gerasene demoniac, the, 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 the crowds there are afraid. And out of response to their fear, they ask Jesus to leave. In Jairus, whenever Jesus was going to his daughter, Jesus said, Do not fear, only believe. In response to the transfiguration, Peter is afraid, and he does not know what to say. As Andrew Lincoln points out, there are 12 references to fear in Mark. One is positive, one ambiguous, and 10, including all the references to the disciples, is negative. This is a common thing for us, isn't it? We find ourselves in occasions where we should be more like Joseph of Arimathea and boldly do something, and yet we find ourselves in fear doing nothing. I mean, one of the things that we recognize as we read is that fear is a paralyzing enemy to faith. See, the women ultimately, they do no better than the men. But the way that Mark tells the resurrection story, we are to recognize... That though they tell no one, Mark's audience, in fact, knows about the resurrection. 
We know about the resurrection. And so it speaks to God's power and God's faithfulness in doing what God has decided to do. See, one of the things that I think Mark intentionally does is he highlights the disciples' failure. He highlights Jesus' faithfulness and God's resurrection power. Martin Luther once wrote this ironic statement, The righteous man always resembles more a loser than a victor. That's not how we often characterize ourselves as disciples. See, when Mark's gospel ends, we are, tended to, we are tempted to think all is doomed, and yet resurrection power is such that even in spite of the disciples' behavior, this message cannot and will not be contained. It's like light that you put up in a bright place. It cannot be hidden. Not that one chooses to hide it. It just simply is not possible to hide something that is this good news that is a reflection of the power of God. See, is it, that, is it that God works in us if and when we become winners? Or does God work in us when we are still failures? That seems to be the case here in Mark. Unfaithful people, and yet God's faithful message goes out. See, all throughout Mark, there has been this, this parallel of Jesus' faithfulness and his power beside the disciples' foolishness and fear. The problem that we may get into is believing that our weakness exempts us from participating in God's work. Where the biblical message is our weakness, in fact, enables us and empowers us to do God's work. The success of the gospel story is not dependent on human performance. Even when human actors fail, God's power still is seen and shown. God invites human participation, but we are not the be-all or end-all. Because if we were, then in Mark's gospel, the story is, and nothing happened. It all died in their silence, and yet their audience and us know that's not the case. As Mark Garland says, this is not about the disciples' foolishness and failure. It is about the gospel and the power of God which overcomes human dysfunction and disaster. If we want to speak of the good news, we will speak of an empty tomb. If we want to speak of the good news, we will realize that even after resurrection, disciples will falter, and yet God's promises will be fulfilled. There is a fine line for us as Christians between reporting the good news and becoming the good news. We are to be heralds and reporters of what God has done. See, we really should never have learned the names Aaron Smelter and Mike McCormick. They were employees of WYFF News 4 based in South Carolina who were sent to cover the story of subtropical storm Alberto and as they arrived on the scene, they were killed, and they themselves became the news. Can't that happen for us as disciples? We are to testify of God's faithfulness. We are to testify of God's power. And somewhere along the line, we end up talking about our faithfulness and our power. We testify to the good news. We are not the good news. When we become the good news, we become the voice pieces talking about all our good deeds and all our behaviors. And if we speak about the good news, what we will do is we will insist on editing out any parts of the story that share about our failures. 
It's ironic, Mark's primary source for his gospel is Peter, and who is painted in the worst possible light in his gospel? Peter. Because Peter knows the gospel is not about him. In fact, he knows whenever he recognizes and admits all his failure and all his inadequacy, that speaks to the greatness of the good news story of Jesus Christ's faithfulness and God's power in resurrection. Malcolm Gladwell, uh, in reference to Rick Berry's, he's an NBA player, Rick Berry's autobiography says, It is the strangest autobiography I have ever read. And the reason is because Barry allows people to write about him, and he does not edit anything that they say. And so this is what Rick Barry's mother writes in his autobiography in regards to his brother Dennis. She says, Rick has become famous and made a lot of money. But what is that? I think maybe Dennis leads the better life. And if you're editing that in your own autobiography, do you let that stand or do you edit it out? What we have become masters at is editing out our failures. We have become masters at trying to make ourselves the good news message instead of recognizing by telling our failures we are telling of God's faithfulness and God's power to be at work in us and with us. When Mark tells the story of Jesus, he is consistently telling of Jesus' faithfulness and God's power in resurrection. The power is not located in these human actors. In fact, the more they fail, the more the good news comes forth. And perhaps the same is true of us. See, when we report the good news, we are to become voice pieces about all that God has done in Jesus Christ. Are we willing, like Paul, to say, I am the chief of sinners? Are we willing, like Paul, to say, if I boast, I boast in Jesus Christ. Are we willing, like Paul, to say, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I celebrate in the good news because it is the story of what God has done in my failure. And I hope you celebrate the good news in the same way. So I thank God for an empty tomb. I thank God for a resurrected Christ. And I thank God that His story is the story of good news. That even as my failures are told, He will be exalted. He will be lifted up. And His power will be revealed. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. Paul recognizes what we need as we enter into this week, and so he prays this prayer over the Corinthians that I'll pray over you as well, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that the love of God and that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. If you'd like to respond in any way, uh, I'll be in the back. Some of our elders will be in the back. If you need somebody to pray with you, uh, come and find us in the back while we stand and while we sing.